Hello and welcome back to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast. This episode is a conversation with my good friend, David Hughes. David is a woodworker and landscape architect who works with locally wild plant species, both in creating the beautiful outdoor furniture and functional items that as a craftsman he creates, and also as a landscape designer working with native plant materials to create functional, ecologically restored landscapes. You can see David's work at his website, weatherwooddesign.com. Also be sure to check out the Wild Plant Culture podcast page or our Facebook page for pictures of the beautiful native green roof that we collaborated with David Hughes on. This episode is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants. We are offering mail order this season from our native plant nursery with many species of edible and medicinal native plant, beautiful woodland wildflowers, upland meadow species, and much more. Check us out at wildridgeplants.com for easy online ordering. Thanks so much. And now... Please enjoy this conversation with David Hughes. So I don't want to scoop my own intro, but I was thinking about describing you as somebody who knows native and invasive plants in and out, with the out being sort of obvious, you know, you're a landscape architect, we kind of met each other doing a lot of hikes and so on, but also inside because you're literally dealing with like the insides of these plants. So I was wondering if, just to start us out, you can give me the short version, because I want to get into all kinds of details with you, of the woodworking you do, what kind of species you work with, and how how do you describe your woodworking? I know that it's sort of rustic furniture, but you do outdoor things too. Well, I mean, the furniture just kind of evolves from the landscape projects that I do, because... Yeah, you know, it's not like the typical woodworker who goes out to Home Depot or Lowe's and picks out the wood that they want and then brings it home and starts building with it. Mine comes from a completely different direction. It's finding something that's left over from a landscape site or a restoration site. And so I never know what actually I'm going to come home with. It, you know, it could be a common species or it could be an uncommon species. And um, I'm constantly collecting things that are kind of a little less usual. You know, like just recently I got some persimmon wood and that's oh, really nice. cool. It seems to have a darker heartwood. Um, so that's kind of the magic of it is I'm always getting something that's a little different and unique, not just in... The quality of what the piece is, but the possibly what the species is, and you know it, it goes back and forth because it lets me uh, get to know a native plant, or it could be an exotic plant depending on the project site. But typically, a native plant in a whole different way than what, say, a gardener gets to know yeah. or a designer gets to know, because I'm looking at the inside of the plant now, not just the outside. Um, and when I build, you know, I'm really interested in 
capturing the essence of what that plant is or the place that that plant came from or tree typically they're trees sometimes shrubs but uh, that's what's so fun about it for me is you know trying to make the piece of a place instead of just something that you use do you go out and see a piece of you know see a piece of a you know a tree or a branch or whatever and say like oh yeah that's that's a chair or that's a garden gate or you have stuff lying around kind of in your idea pile and eventually it comes together absolutely yeah so you know when Carrie and I go on hikes uh, I'll see stuff and I'll be like wow that would be a really fantastic yeah. arm rest or yeah the back of the chair or a leg or something like that and then I think well you know, I don't want to just go and cut down that tree because yeah. <laughs> that's just not what I'm doing it for. Um, but then I also see opportunities where something has fallen down or, you know, in some cases where human impacts, they're going to be trimming along this right of way and what resource is going to be basically looked at by them as a waste product to me as a byproduct. And so... Um, that's really fun to recapture kind of something that somebody else is basically going to be throwing away. One of the things that I really admire about your work is that you have this really interesting balance of, I think, the kind of chaos of the natural pieces, which are going to bend and contort in whatever way they did in response to sun and wind and their whole life history. But you're also very meticulous and you have this very careful craftsmanship and I guess I'm sort of wondering like what is it about your personality that allows you to deal with on the one hand like these very kind of like messy pieces but creating this like very beautiful order out of them is that something that is that David Hughes or is that just like a happenstance side you know trait no. of yours no yeah I think that is David Hughes <laughs> you know I've got a a healthy dose of being anal retentive I'm here in your office and I'm seeing everything has like really carefully labeled like what it is, where it goes, which is, oh, thanks. No. You're on the air. We're getting, we're getting a very generous delivery of hot chocolate here. Thanks so much. Thanks, Carrie. Yeah, you know, the bin with the bills to pay and the, the classes to attend and so on. And then again, like right next to them, there's these chairs with those like fantastical branches coming through and stuff. So I, I find that admirable. Well, I mean, my, my office here that we're sitting in, I want it to be fun and creative and uh, a space that is engaging to me all the time because I want to pull that into my design projects, whether it be making a landscape design or making a piece of furniture. Um, there are any, uh, what are you working on right now, woodworking-wise? Do you have any projects going on or anything that you're... I have several projects that I should be working on. So that you're working on right now. <laughs> um, I am working on a set of uh, a coffee table and side tables for a friend of mine. Um, and uh, the fun part of this particular piece is they are being made of white oak that was a historic tree here on my uh, dad's property that came down the five years ago in a thunderstorm and it's it was 
a very, very old oak, white oak, um, probably in the realm of 300 to 350 years. Wow. Um, we tried counting the rings, and there just were so many that we had to stop somewhere around 160 years. But we were only a portion of the way through the tree. Um, so, you know, it's it's fun to, not just fun, but it's engaging to build something that has so much history to my particular family. And this will be the first piece that I've actually made from this tree. Um, and I have saved other pieces that will be making other things later on from it, but this is the kind of the first attempt. And uh, it's a very tight-grained white oak, which again suggests that it was a very, very old tree. Um, more um, newer oaks will have wider gaps within the grain. Um, and respectively won't be quite as strong. They'll still be strong because it's a white oak species. Yeah, how does that grain pattern, does that affect your work in terms of how you approach it woodworking-wise or what the how the final product behaves or anything? Maybe to some degree. Um, you know, if it's a, a newer tree, then I might use stock that's a little thicker um, because I know it may not have quite the integrity of an older tree. Yeah. Um, but usually that's really the only limiting factor. Um, so this will be indoor furniture? This particular, yes, will be an indoor piece. You could use white oak for outdoor pieces because mm -hmm. it is reasonably rot resistant. Um, I have some bigger slabs that I probably will make a, an outdoor farm-like table from. Yes. And uh, that's a good method with uh, building with rustic furniture is start small with a piece. Uh, uh, smaller idea and make something with it until you get to know how that you know individual tree is is the wood really knotty is it really gnarly and then therefore it's more difficult to work with but then that also tends to bring in a lot of beauty within the mm -hmm. grain too so yeah. you don't just cast it off because of that but you you just utilize it in a slightly different way what if you are doing an outside piece? What are some rot resistant species that you either like working with or that you're experimenting with or that are kind of out there on the floor that might be familiar to folks in other ways but not as sure? Yeah, well, um, I think I'll step back one there. Sure. I haven't found a species that I don't like working with <laughs> per se, nice. uh, because they're all interesting, you know, it's like people, they're all interesting and different and uh, have bring different aspects to the table um, to work with. Uh, as for rot resistance, you know, the best ones um, tend to be um, black locust, white mulberry, Osage orange, um, black locust being probably the, the Cadillac version of mm -hmm. rot resistancy. Um, but even sassafras and red cedar, uh, a little lower on the list, but still have a reasonably good rot resistance. That's interesting. And I'm starting to find out about some other species that are, like uh, northern catalpa hmm. seems to be more rot resistant. Um, white oak is somewhat rot resistant. So there's, kind of, like many things, there's a gradation, and with the black locust being at the very top of that.
how do you find out about new species if you're curious or you're kind of fishing for something, um, you know, other than obviously working with it directly? Are there sources or mentors or what have you that you look to? Or Yeah, so there's a variety of ways. There, are, there have been books that have been written um, that... Um, Often we'll have a list in them that's, that is known through past woodworkers, uh, species that were rot-resistant. Some of it, uh, the U.S. Forest Service prints um, bulletins about different species and what their um, wood characteristics and qualities are. Um, just uh, reading through... Um, catalogs of timber species that are available. Now, often those are timber species that are available all from all around the world. Sure. Um, but, uh, and just knowing a little bit about a genus, um, um, like the mulberries, for example, um, I, I would be pretty, feel pretty confident in saying that mulberries probably around the world are rot-resistant. As you get more towards, um, the equator and, and tropical climates, those woods tend to be a little bit more rot resistant because they're in a high moisture content climate where they need to hang around longer in order for the tree to survive those conditions. Yeah. Are there some species where certain parts are usable and others are less so, like a younger or old heartwood or, you know? Mm -hmm. Things like that. Yeah, so a general rule of thumb is the heartwood is the most valuable in a tree, um, and the sapwood is typically a little less valuable um, because, again, if you're looking at rot resistancy, uh, that carries true where the sapwood is, even on rot resistant species, the sapwood is much less rot resistant than the hardwood. Um, but even within a tree and a particular species, a crotch in a tree is generally going to be much more rot resistant and durable than say some straight grain part of the wood or where the wood was damaged by say it was rubbing against another tree in the woods that callus area sometimes can be a source of rot but sometimes it can also be a source of uh, kind of hardening like sure. like it would be on your thumb and you had a callus that's much harder and more durable. So, um, yeah, again, that kind of gets back to finding out the story or the history in that plant and then utilizing that qualities of that history in what you're building. So, uh, what kind of tools do you use? Um, so again, one of my favorite tools is, uh, is a draw knife, um, but I ought and I, I use that a lot <clears throat> to pare down uh, sticks or get, uh, like, say, the outer part of the stick, the, the sapwood, off and get down to the heartwood. Um, another tool, and this is kind of common for me, is that I tend to have a, have a tendency to use tools that are not necessarily made for what I, for what I use them for, but um, a paint remover tool, which is basically a, a flat disc that grinds and you can run it along siding, for example, um, removes paint really quickly and easily. Well, if you put a tungsten blade on it, 
it can actually remove a lot of wood really quickly uh -huh. too. And because I'm using pieces that oftentimes, you know, part of the tree is perfectly good and, and solid, but there may be other parts of the tree because that part was leaning against the ground or something has, has started to decay. I'll need to get through all that decayed material and get down to where the heartwood is. And so this type of tool I can use quickly and efficiently to grind away softer, punkier wood and get down to the solid wood really quickly. Um, I use a tile gauge oftentimes, which is a little tool that has a bunch of little metal pins and you can press it against a curved yeah, surface. I just discovered this. I was like, wow. This is incredible. Yeah. I didn't know this existed. I, I mean, the day it's that so I... so hard to do that without that tool. Yeah. The day I found that, light bulbs were exploding all <laughs> over in my head. Um, because w working with Rustic, you are, you know, almost never putting a flat board against a flat yeah. board. It's always a curved surface against another curved surface. So by be able, being able to capture a radius of something by having these little metal pins that push out of the way uh, and create that um, scribe area, you can then more easily marry one piece to another. And that to me is a really magical and um, fun part of what I do is trying to get pieces to come together as if they had grown together. Yeah. Um, and I'm using a lot more of those techniques as I advance and develop as a woodworker to really get into the nitty-gritty of, you know, how does one piece relate to another piece and how do you make that connection? You know, do you make it on one is curved and one's a flat surface and you create a flat surface in the curved piece to make the other thing fit? Yeah. Or do you work with the fact that they're both curved and you want them to kind of grow together into one piece and that to me is really the essence of what i enjoy doing i will post pictures on the website for anybody who wants to see your work by the way and definitely put in a link and so on so that it's all accessible right now i'm looking at this little scale model that you have up against your window it's probably 10 inches tall and it's of a garden gate and it's a combination of round wood and there's flat sort of hand presumably shaven planks in it and you know, the bark is still on part of it and then the top part of the gate itself of the door that swings open is a bunch of sticks just going kind of meandering in the direction that they they grew and I totally see what you see what you're saying about integrating these different materials in a way that it looks like they grew together I really appreciate that so yeah I'll have that up on the wild plant culture website for people to see some of your work if you'd be willing to send some along and of course a link to your website so yeah. you didn't start out with this necessarily though like when i first met you you were as far as i knew basically doing landscape architecture with a strong focus on native species so i'm wondering if you can rewind and then we'll come back around to the present and I guess to go way back like why plants why native plants um how did you get into the stuff to start out with uh as a kid uh, i spent <clears throat> a lot of time just kind of wandering around in woods and 
playing in streams. There was a park at the end of my street that had a lot more natural areas in it versus uh, ball field and planned outdoor recreation. And uh, it had a lot of old trees. There were a lot of big tulip poplar trees and big oak trees. And, you know, you as a kid, you're crawling all over everything and getting really dirty and in amongst things. And I just started to notice how beautiful, you know, different types of trees were. And I think, you know, it was easy for me as a kid to look up at a tree and just be amazed at its winter architecture against the sky and what patterns it was making and um, why does it grow the way it grows, you know? How, how is it able to endure strong winds or heavy snows and things like that? So I think I always had a mindset of wanting to know more about trees and plants and, you know, one of the basic things you start with is, well, what is in my field of vision? You know, what are those trees? What are those spring ephemerals? And uh, learning about them, because once you learn about what is around you, then you can go into other landscapes and evaluate, well, is this something I've seen before or is this something new? And if it's something new, oh, well, I want to know about that too. Um, so... Yeah, I think it was kind of easy for me as a kid to just uh, wander and explore and try and learn from what was presented to me in my local neighborhood. How did that translate forward to you getting involved in so, doing uh, design? I actually grew up and had a hard time learning, so I was a very visual learner. And again, so being out in nature was not... It was easy for me, whereas being in a classroom was not, and learning traditional ways was not. So I was always a hands-on type person. And uh, when I got through high school and was talking with guidance counselors about going on to college, um, I thought I would go into forestry because I like the outdoors and I like to know about trees. And I already by high school, I had already, you know, it was easy for me to tell what a maple was and an oak was and, you know, um, so, uh, I even shadowed a forester, uh, for a day when I was a teenager and, um, you know, got to know kind of a little bit about what an, an average day was for uh, somebody in the forestry, um, department for Pennsylvania. And <laughs> they were a little discouraging in the fact that they said, you know, if I had to do it again, I would do something else because uh -huh. there's no jobs and you, the pay is terrible and you're not always out in the field like you'd like to be. So, um, strange, oddly enough, my guidance counselor, and I wish I could remember who, this, who the person is, um, suggested, well, you know, you've got some art background too because I took art classes in high school and was reasonably good at that as well. Um, again, a visual thing. Um, suggested that I look into landscape architecture because it uses plants and it uses drawing uh, and the arts to have a career. So uh, I did, and uh, that's what I went to Penn State for was 
landscape architecture. I didn't start out at main campus like you're supposed to, but uh, eventually transferred up there. And, you know, I stepped into that curriculum and it was perfect for me. Um, for the first time in my career, learning was actually easy. And uh, getting to know plants even more, and the horticultural plants, and learning about how to draw and in a technical form, uh, again, just came more naturally to me. So the, the ball had started to really roll downhill well at that point. Were you already forming a sort of philosophy around landscape architecture at that time and getting into native plants? And I think the native plants was always kind of hanging in the background with mm -hmm. me because, again, and, you know, maybe it was just dumb intuition, but um, I wanted to know where I my starting point was and, you know, what was around me. And so learning the Pennsylvania native plants was very high on my list of things that I thought was appropriate. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's always all, all that stressed in landscape architecture programs. It's more about knowing horticultural plants. And my line of thinking was, well, all right, yeah, let's learn the horticultural plants, but I want to know the plants that are here now already and be able to swing back and forth between those two uh, parts of the world that we live in. So you got a property that you bought, I guess a few years ago at this point, yeah, up along the Delaware uh, or close to it. And you've been doing a bunch of work there. I haven't seen it in a little bit, so I'm curious where it's at. But I was wondering if you could Tell us a little bit about that property, about its ecological context, and about what you're trying to accomplish there, what you've done so far, what's working, what's not working, um, what kind of glimmers of hope you see, or what things have been exciting of late. So, yeah, um, I bought this property in uh, June of 2014. Um, I was awa made aware of it because our family had family reunions in the park across the street for many, many years. And I saw this little house sitting on a what seemed to be a reasonably good size, and it's four acres, or a little over four acres, lot. And it had some woods and it had some fields. And I thought, wow, that would just be the perfect place for me. And it sat and sat and sat on the market because the person wanted too much money for what it was. And uh, so um, after a few years, I went with a realtor to look at it um, and walk around it. And it was a kind of situation where I just walked onto the piece of property and I had been looking at other properties at that time. And it just felt like the place to be. And um, my realtor really, she thought I was crazy that I was <laughs> buying land or buying a place based upon the land more than sure. the actual structure. Because the structure that there is not very livable at, in its current condition. But it has its own beauty as well because it's an 1859 uh, log cabin essentially underneath the cottage that it looks like today. But... Um, Having worked 
You know, at this point, for 30 years in the landscape architecture restoration field, um, I'm dealing with properties all the time that are heavily degraded. And I wanted to come home at the end of the day and not be on a property that I would look in every direction and see an invasive plant. And fortunately, this property, while it has had some invasive plants on it, and there still are a few, um, the woods were primarily pretty darn healthy. The deer had done a lot of damage um, to the woods, but because they're so dry and rocky, a lot of invasive plants were having a hard time getting into this woods. Um, so I felt like I could rest and not feel like I had to quick make a dinner and get outside and be pulling something. <laughs> um, again, kind of a crazy way to look at buying property. But for me, it was uh, sanity, buying sanity. Um, since then, uh, basically I've just been trying to give the property an opportunity to be more in tune with the natural landscape that it would have been or wants to be. Uh, so removing as many invasive plants as possible, encouraging the woods to be healthier by leaving down trees and by leaving some of the brush in the woods to decay and build the soils on these thin rocky soils. Um, by encouraging wildlife to come back to the property. And how am I doing that? I'm doing that because I'm adding plants that have more berries or nuts or some type of nesting uh, capability. Because again, with this property having such an impact by deer, the shrub layer in the woodland areas is almost completely gone. Um, in fact, there were no native shrubs on this property. Um, I have since uh, early on when I purchased the property enclosed the whole property with deer fencing. And the beauty of doing that is you start to see what the deer were really impacting. Because there were things there, but they were munched down to such a small level that you really couldn't see them well. And now things are starting to come back or starting to seed in that you weren't seeing uh, in the beginning. Um, and I've been keeping you know, a loose botanical uh, record of what was there and what is now becoming there. Yeah, and there are some things that weren't perceivable when you arrived that have come in subsequent to putting the deer fence in. Right. The other thing I should mention too is yeah. I stopped mowing. Uh, two of the four acres. You didn't the four acres so you could maintain it as a mowed lawn? <laughs> no. My goal is to get the mowed area down to under an hour. And I'm not quite there yet. But, but you're doing trails and stuff. Trails, like yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah, but when I bought the property... And the putting green, right? <laughs> absolutely. When I bought the property, there were two acres of mowed lawn. Wow. Um, and the, basically the other two acres were woods or woodlots. Um, and some hedgerows. Um, I have stopped mowing some areas uh, just to see what is going to come up on its own. Yeah. 
Other areas I stopped mowing and actually seeded uh, native wildflower meadows. Those were the wet areas. Um, and uh, also are letting things volunteer into the seeded area as well. Um, some of the beautiful things that have come in that I really didn't know I had or I didn't know I had a lot of. Um, unbelievable to me was the deer were actually eating a lot of the penstemon, um, the white penstemon. Yeah. Um, the deer were eating all of the bloodroot that were on the site. I now have, you know, patches of a dozen or more bloodroots in different areas of the property nice. and little seedling ones coming up here, there, and everywhere. Um, I didn't know I had spring beauties. Um, I didn't know uh, that I had starry campion. Um, some of these forest herbs that are a little less common. Yeah. Um, I think when I because, first... I mean, it's also, it's a fairly small woodlot. It's not like mm -hmm. it's surrounded by, I mean, across the street there's a big park, but it's not yeah. surrounded by much more woods. And starry campion is kind of a specialized, like, dry ridge top mm -hmm. thing. It's pretty cool to have that just pop up in your yeah. back, too. Yeah. Um, there's woods anemone that have uh, really flourished. Now, I think they were there, and I just wasn't able to see them as well. Um, uh, our native heuchera, heuchera americana, is popping up all yeah. over the place. Um, there's just been a, a flurry of all kinds of native species that are showing up or showing up and being more robust. Penstermon hirsutus has come in in one example, yeah. and yet I haven't seen that in anywhere around where I am. And the deer impact where I am, where this property is in Tinicum, is heavy. It's yeah. very heavy because of the park across the street. And I found out, too, from some of my neighbors that the person who owned the property before used to actually feed the deer. So they were used to being on my property sure. um, as part of their natural habitat. Um, I'm also finding that because my woodlands are very rocky and very dry, um, the regeneration is slow. Uh, it's slow because even though the last few years have been reasonably wet and things are getting more nutrients and more water, when it transitions to a drier period, that period, the transition period is relatively quick. Yeah. It could be as quick as a week or two before it's from a kind of moist woods to where it's bone dry. Yeah. And that really surprised me. I wasn't aware that the change would happen so quickly. That's really cool because I feel like it's in those adverse conditions that you have spaces for specialist species that otherwise, you know, might not be as competitive or as tall or as fast growing as some of the things that might occupy our more rich sort of music, moistish woodland and just the stuff you mentioned like having the native heuchera in there and stuff that's oh, really cool yeah and the the open areas the the formerly mowed lawn are super wet and stay almost super wet most of the year most of the season which is so interesting because it's not like there's a lot of topographical relief between the dry there is not and the wet areas so how do you interpret that i think it's slight different change in geology the 
the open areas I think is more red shale, mm -hmm. whereas the wooded areas and the hedgerows, which have the lot, a lot of rocks in, is the gray shale, which yeah. is a harder shale. Yeah. Um, part of it is one of the woodlands that um, Carrie and um, and niece of hers worked at really hard this past year of eradicating. Um, or Japonica, um, Japanese honeysuckle from <clears throat> completely. It was a quarter acre of Japanese honeysuckle, and they were able to pull it, hand pull wow. it. Um, that was a little more moist and a little more rich woods, which I knew had a lot more native florist herbaceous layer in. There were more blood roots. There were more other um, Solomon seal and other things in there, and we're really excited because we worked on it all last year and this spring will be its first spring that it has nice. been yeah. released yeah. so we're so super excited to see what actually comes in this year that was being inhibited all these years what are some of the other things that you do on or with your property um, i have several things in mind but i'll leave it open-ended for you um, so I, I really enjoy enhancing up the habitat that's on the property and also bringing in micro-habitats that maybe weren't there. So one thing I did early on was I just dug a, a pond, and I'm fortunate and I have a perched water table there. And as I was saying earlier, the open areas are re reasonably wet. So all I needed to do to get a pond was to dig a hole. Yeah. And again, there's not much topographic change, but under, under the surface of the ground, there's a lot of water flowing. And um, I actually hope to, this next year, uh, increase the pond size um, to have kind of a marshy area of the pond and then an open water area of the pond. And right now, I just have the open water. Um, You've had amphibians come to your pond area? Some, up? yeah. They, are, they have been... Numerous in some capacity with green frogs, um, but not so. I haven't seen a salamander on my property yet, yeah. uh, which has a little bit surprised to me. There have been some snakes, but not a lot of snakes. Um, there were no spring peepers, to the best of my knowledge, when I first bought the property. But now I have spring peepers. Nice. Um, there are tree frogs. Um, yeah, y you know, that old cliche if you build it they will come is really true uh, I am seeing all kinds of birds that I wasn't seeing originally I am seeing more and more amphibians as the years go on and habitats rebuilt again because of the deer kind of clearing away a lot of areas there was not a lot of brush even on the property so there was no place for anything to hide yeah um, I've <laughs> with my wood Hoarding abilities for my furniture have piles everywhere. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, I have lots of hiding places. You've got good snake habitat. Good snake habitat, good chipmunk habitat. Uh, yeah. Nice. You have some persimmons on your property, if I remember right. Yeah, I do. I have uh, both male and female persimmons. They seem to be in this more richer, uh, slightly more moist wooded area where the Japanese honeysuckle was yeah. taken out. Um, and uh, one of them fell down last year, and uh, that was the one that I milled and 
and nice, nicely surprised by the fact when we milled it is it seems to have a really dark chocolate heartwood. Yeah, it's in the ebony family, right? Yeah. yeah. I've never worked with persimmon wood, but I'd be I'll be very curious to see. Yeah. Do you know what you're going to do with that or have any inklings? Or I don't. It's... Waiting for, hey, people, <laughs> listen up. You want a project? David's got this great persimmon wood. It's like the native ebony. Give him a call. Weatherwood Design. Sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. I just couldn't resist. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It's been sitting underneath the tarp drying um, for two years now. Nice. And... Uh, yeah, there are so many, you know, there's not enough hours or light in the day to sure. do all the things I want to do. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. You know, we talked, you mentioned uh, seeding in your meadows. And you and I have done some classes together where we've taught about creating meadows and so on. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. You know, there's what, 45 million acres of lawn out there in the United States, the impacts in terms of water use and pollution are disproportionate, plus it's, it's just plain stupid, right? Mm -hmm. Not to infuriate anybody or anything. Um, and in some ways, it's so easy to take that already sunny, disturbed habitat and turn it into something else. And I feel like one of the quickest returns in terms of turning it into something else is turning it into a meadow. In some ways, it's not all that different from lawn, except it's a lot lower maintenance and is a lot better for all the other creatures. And so if you're game, I'm just springing this on you, do you mind going through together some of the uh, processes of meadow creation? I've really just been thinking, like, I just want to give it away. I just, you know, this is something that I feel like everybody should yeah. feel like they at least understand this is what I have to do if I wanted to take, you know, my lawn or that little unused area and make it into something a lot more vibrant and glorious than it is. So how, excuse me, how would you approach it at your property? And also, you know, what are, what are some of the fundamentals of meadow creation? I know you've done this a lot as a landscape architect. Mm -hmm. So, Well, in, in my property, because I use it in in somewhat of an experimental way to show people different ways to do things. Um, I am using di different strategies in different areas. Uh, for example, in the one area that I, it's basically a cool season meadow, I have just let it, um, by not mowing, let come in what would naturally want to come in, and that includes uh, some invasive plants that I go through and then edit out. Mm -hmm. But uh, when there are more diversity of things, some interesting goldenrods um, and other species that start coming in, then I start trying to enhance those areas around it to make those, to give those species an opportunity to continually spread and hopefully build diversity. So that's what's happening in some areas. And that's sort of like a low expense but higher expertise maybe, like you mm -hmm. know, just really being out there as an observer and kind of yep. knowing at least somewhat what you're looking at and doing editing. And a really valuable lesson I learned this year is there were some um, asters that came into that area early on. And I think they were actually there, but the deer were eating them down to just sure. non-noticeable levels. Um, but the, the wow factor of letting this aster um, grow on there was the fact that this fall when um, all of the other 
native blooming forbs had pretty much done their cycle for the season. This aster was still blooming and it had a flurry of about 30 monarch butterflies on it late in October nice. this year. Passing through in migration. Passing through in migration. And had I not saved that aster, and it, there were other white asters that were blooming at the same time, yeah. but this one particular patch they were attracted to, and the other patches, you know, it, it's not that they weren't visiting them, but they weren't hanging out and really interested in the nectar that was in this particular yeah. aster. So, again, it speaks to diversity. It speaks to even if you have the same species in a meadow, one patch of it may be more highly valuable than others. Um, so that was a good lesson in, okay, let's see what happens if we just stop mowing and do a little editing. Now, in other areas, um, when you want to seed a meadow, that you can then ensure that there's a great diversity because you're putting that diversity into the seed mix. You have to remove um, the existing vegetation. And what I did is I did uh, hire a, a subcontractor who is a herbicide specialist to come in and do a one-time spray of that field surface when it was cut fairly low uh, in the fall and made sure that I pretty much eradicated that cool season turf grass mm -hmm. that was there. Um, with some exceptions, I did know that there were some Senecio patches in there that I uh, took a string trimmer to and just uh, cleared it to the ground so that those leaves were not being sprayed upon. Yeah. Um, but I knew that they would grow back. Um, so uh, if there were native plants in there that I recognized and uh, wanted to conserve, I would take some strategy, whether it be just remove the top vegetation so that the spray didn't get on it, or cover it with cardboard or something like that temporarily. Um, the rest of it, however, was eradicated, and uh, it was a fall seeding, or so a dormant seeding, and I hand broadcasted it into the soil surface and relied upon nature then to mix that seed into the soil through the freeze and thaw cycle. And I really, I've been doing seeding of meadows for mm, nearly 30 years now, and I find that if you can mimic or follow nature's cycles you get the meadow just jumping out of the ground the next year versus doing some other strategies of a spring seeding and maybe drill seeding it in you get meadows and you get lovely meadows but it may take longer uh, and the diversity may not be as rich in those again i think it varies from site to site and spring to spring or fall to fall but I noticed that most of my fall meadows really gets a lot of diversity and pretty darn quickly. So that's what I did at my place. I did a fall seeding. Uh, I actually did two different sections because I, I had a budget I was working with and had to do one section one winter and another section the next winter and so on and so forth. Now, four years down the road, you can barely tell one section from the other. I use the same seed mix in both sections. Um, they look... Uh, virtually the same, um, even though they were seeded at different times. And uh, yeah, it every year it just strikes me how different it looks because the meadow, like a child growing up, yeah. you know, 
has different characteristics every year and learns something new and somebody is shown off one year and then the next year they kind of sit in the background and something else is shown off. And it's really an amazing process. I feel like that's one of the exciting things about having a meadow versus like a more static horticultural plant thing is just how it shifts through the season and it shifts from year to year and it really evolves. And, you know, our meadow was a soybean field when we moved in about five, six years ago and it has changed, like you said. I like that. Actually, really like that metaphor. Um, you know, changed like a child growing up and to be there and observe that. You don't even necessarily need to know what every species is, but it's, you just see like swaths of different color through mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the years and that shifting. Yeah, and that's just to say, you know, the changing of the physical plants in it. That's not to say the changing of the insects that are now sure. inhabiting it and yeah. visiting it and that are changing and growing and, and evolving with it as well. You mentioned taking your meadow or doing your site prep and bringing it down to a blank slate using herbicide and I'm curious about some other ways that you've experimented with or you know mm -hmm. worked with clients on creating that blank slate where you know some people have an aversion to using herbicide for that site prep phase yeah we actually get a good number of clients that do not choose to take that route or do not want to take that route and I want to be clear that the reason why I took that route is because it, for my budget and my economics, that was the most direct way to get there. Yeah. However, I look at herbicides as like the last tool I want to use in my toolbox. Um, if I can do it some other way and I have the time or I have the financial resources, I would prefer to do it that way. Um, other clients, again, who make different decisions and just are do not want to use herbicides at all. If it's a small enough area, we can use a smothering technique, and we've used that for maybe four or five clients in the last few years. And there are pros and cons to it, just like other uh, seeding methods. Uh, the, pro the pros are, obviously, you are not using any herbicides to do it. Uh, you need some type of smothering material, whether it be black plastic or old tarps or cardboard and wood chips. Uh, all of those can work. Um, what we found with the black plastic, we thought, great, you know, here's a product that we can use. We can roll out. Yeah. Um, it's, it's black, so it absorbs the heat and will help solarize the plants much more quickly. And then we can after we've prepared the site, roll the plastic back up and reutilize. And our naive, naive, naive ways <laughs> made us realize that once the plastic's down, the soil tends to clump to it in enough areas that the plastic gets so heavy you yeah. have to discard it. And that's the thing about, you know, there's no silver bullet in any of these techniques. Yeah. And oftentimes you're trading one petroleum product for another. Yep. Um, so, I mean, even if you go over the site and you till it a bunch of times, you're yeah, running a tractor. Yeah, you're burning fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, so it, it does work to solarize the site. Um, I think herbicides still probably, in many cases, where some of the most difficult weeds um, work more effectively. Um, you in in 
almost all the sites that we used um, the black plastic or tarps we did get a good bit of still grass coming in fairly quickly in the solarized areas because apparently we don't get the soil surface hot enough to burn the seed bank mm -hmm. of the stilt grass. Um, but we did seed those meadows after a year of solarizing the site. Um, we found on one project that we actually had to fence the plastic area because the deer were walking across the plastic and poking holes in it, therefore not solarizing the area well. Uh, again, another surprise, but, you know, well-learned lesson. Um, the meadows that came in from the solarized areas um, tend to be a little slower in getting themselves established because there still was some competition from some of the seed bank of um, annual weeds and things like that that uh, were still there in heavy amounts. Um, you can, in small areas, also strip the soil surface mm -hmm. by using a sod cutter. But again, the economics, you can only do smaller areas for that or it just gets so expensive. And you now have, again, another byproduct. You have all of this sod. And what are you going to do with that yeah. type of thing? In some areas, that works. You can use it for some other resource. Um, are there... Yeah. Are there a couple of species that you really like working with or that, uh, you know, maybe we'll stick with the meadow theme for the time being and then we can branch out, but you know, things that you really like working with in a seed mix that you find to be functional in some way or another? Well, I mean, the good thing about a meadow, um, you don't necessarily have to worry about deer browsing being an overwhelming problem because it's such a jumble of plants. Uh, it's a tight matrix where there's many things in there that they have less desire in. And they could be right next to things that they have a heavy desire for. Like your grasses and sedges yeah. and things grasses, like that. Grasses, sedges, the mint family. Yeah. You know, the deer aren't particularly interested in those. But you could have asters in amongst them that they would love to be at. <laughs> uh, and they miss, you know, a good number of them. So that component stays within the the um, habitat that you've created. Um, certainly we seem to have a lot of areas because of the deer where there's a lot of the white pensamen, pensamen digitalis, um, that is doing well. It can yeah. tolerate a lot of different uh, soil types. Um, Minarda fisculosa is another good one. Can be even a little bit overly aggressive if you use too high a concentration of it in the seed mix. Have you seen Minarda fistulosa wild bergamot um, persist for a long time as a dominant when you've seeded it in, or is it that sort of initial couple years where it's really... Yeah, I, I see it more as the initial couple of years it persists, and then it kind of backs its way off a little bit. Um, I tend to look at having some components in of plants that I do see in the wild landscape that were not in, not seeded anywhere that just have persisted and try and get those into the mix because I know that they will survive at least the initial pressure of the deer. So we were talking a lot about meadows and you know certainly it takes a lot of education to get the public to kind of transition their thinking from the American lawn to being um, meadows and 
as much as we can do with that, I, I want to push that. But I'm also, as I'm getting on here in my career a little bit more, I've been thinking a lot more about it's not just the meadows that we need to transition lawns to. We need to transition lawns to um, a variety of habitats, taking those low wet spots and making wetlands again, or pocket wetlands, or even vernal wetlands. Um, taking those parts of the lawn that are uh, sunny open areas and creating shrub thickets again because we don't really have many remnant areas in our landscapes that are just shrublands. They're more either going to be a park-like woodlands or they're going to be open space. And I think we've lost a lot of that component yeah. in our urban landscapes. Having said that, a lot of our woods are so badly degraded that getting more woodlands anywhere we can, too, is really important. A good example is actually right out my office window here where I had put in a bed of native plants, mostly a single canopy tree with a bunch of native shrubs around. And ironically, nature decided that that single sugar maple tree was not to be there as that particular tree and some disease came in and killed it after it was in for a few years. But nature seeded in four or five species of native trees into that planting bed while I was waiting for that main tree to get healthy. Uh, so now I have an eight-inch caliper white oak that's seeded wow. by itself. I have a red maple tree that is 30 foot tall that's seeded in by itself. I have a native dogwood that's seeded in by itself. I have three beech trees seeded in, one red oak, two hickory trees, and also kind of ironically, three seedling sugar maples from that original sugar maple tree. Now this is a space that is maybe 40 feet long by 15 foot wide. And I have a lot of people that I think have, you know, kind of looked at me with a little cross-eyed and wonder why I put so many native trees and shrubs closely together in a landscape. And I simply look at a landscape as, you know, what is nature showing me? And nature shows me trees growing next to trees all the time yeah. in the landscape. And I don't think that in an urban landscape we need to get away from the fact that plants sometimes grow closely together. You get a tree that seeds its way in, a bird comes and sits on that seedling tree, drops seed from another type of seedling tree. Now you have two trees growing six inches apart. Yes, they will compete with one another, but yes, they will also figure out how to exist together. And it seems like the science is coming down the road where trees talk to trees and their networking system below ground work together to help benefit both and also compete with both. And so more and more as my design theory develops, I think that it's smart to be planting trees closely together in little islands and then having others, obviously, that are out in the landscape and having a full area to grow. And that diversity of 
tight niche areas and open areas is really important to the overall matrix of yeah. the landscape. What are some things that are kind of like scratching at your door, like things that are either challenges that you're thinking about now or new things that you'd like to experiment with down the road? I'm, I'm hearing you talking about you know, having put in several decades at this point to this work, and I guess I'm curious, what does that look like? How does that feel in terms of, what does it feel like to have new ideas or to have something not completely perceptible yet on the frontier for you? Do you feel like you go through periods of being stagnant and then you see something that is a new inspiration, or do you feel, I mean, you know, just fed up with certain processes or what what kind of impels change at this point in your career yeah well fortunately i don't feel like i get stagnant and there's a critical reason why i think and that's because i bounce back and forth between the creative juices that i create with making the furniture and the creative process i have with designing a landscape and oftentimes when you're making furniture, you're standing for hours and hours and hours. Your mind is kind of idle, and you can be thinking about that landscape project. And it does not so much vice versa, but um, I have a lot of time on my hands at certain portions of what I do in a day. And that gives me the open space in my mind to be thinking about. And one of the projects in the landscape sector of what I do that I would love to get involved with but just haven't had the right client or the right opportunity, but to design an ecological parking lot, a parking lot unlike mm. yeah. you know, what we as a society accept as a parking lot. And it wouldn't be the parking lot that has you know, 10 trees down the center island planted on 20-foot centers that are all the same species. It would be a parking lot kind of thrown back to the discussion we were just having where there would be little end islands that would have 15 trees in, even though it's a very small space. It would have micro topography in it. It wouldn't be a flat plain. It would be raised up in some areas and depressed in some other areas. The parking lot would be required to function to absorb the water, not just run it off. So wherever there was open space in the parking lot, be it transition areas from parking area to road to the front door of the box store, taking any of those leftover spaces and making them into little forest islands. And I, that to me would be very exciting and very engaging. And, and what you can do is look to those habitats that are marginal habitats um, for example, we don't have any re really close regionally to us, but in the Appalachian Mountains there are um, these bald, uh, granite bald-like landscapes, which are very harsh landscapes, and not a lot of plants are adapted to growing there. But yet you can find a low bush blueberry growing in a crack that's only two inches yeah. wide, you know. And so looking at swapping one type of native habitat that's harsh landscape for an urban landscape which does not necessarily have the same factors but could be designed in a way to have the same factors 
and therefore utilizing plants that can tolerate those types of harsh conditions. That reminds me of a little project that we worked on a bit together that I wanted to ask you how it's doing. Um, you have built a small green roof over a structure maybe. I'll, I'll let you describe the details. And I kicked in a couple plants that I was curious to see how they would do on a green roof. And you know, I have no idea how they did. And I'm wondering, uh, did any of that stuff survive? And maybe you can, you know, if it did, describe the project. If you didn't, you yeah. can just say, uh, let's try that again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. So the idea was I had a shed that I needed more space, more dry space. So uh, I decided I would extend out the back of the shed um, just by a few feet. I think the overall green roof area that we created is somewhere in the lines of eight feet by seven feet uh, with a uh, depth of the soil media of being only four and a half inches. Um, and uh, in actuality, Jared, I think you grew 90% of the plants that are on that roof. Cool. Um, the other thing is... Rich on I, to be fair. Written, yes. <laughs> Wild Ridge. Um, I... I wanted to have a green roof that had all native plants and um, because when you look at the green roof industry it's not about native plants it's just about finding plants that can tolerate that type sure. of um, soil conditions thin soil conditions and exposure. Which is admirable but maybe less functional than. Right. Um, yeah it's just one level of doing an ecological design. Um, I guess my idea was I wanted to increase it to the maximum that we could within the region that I live in. Yeah. So looking at native plants that um, can tolerate more harsh conditions in thinner soils. And so I asked Jared if he could supply me with things like Penstemon hirsutus and Carex apalachica and other um, native plants that have a tendency of us knowing by growing them in the nursery trade and using them in the landscape. That I'm trying to think what else went up there. Was there tolerate. sedum? Sedum turnatum is also up there. Wild columbine. Do we put um, Krigia up there? The two-flowered cynthia? Two-flowered cynthia, which did very well. Oh, nice. Very, very well. It's actually seeded in a number of areas uh, on the roof. Um, some low bush blueberry is up there, and it's just kind of holding its own. Um, we, um, uh, even tried, um, some wild ginger, which did not, uh, seem to survive up there. We tried, uh, tea berry, Galtheria, uh, that didn't seem that to survive. That was a hard to plant to get to survive, survive under anywhere. any conditions. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, we looked at plants that were kind of dim more diminutive in overall yeah. size and shape, um. Uh, another thing that uh, I was um, particularly interested in incorporating is not just plants, but making it an actual like landscape where there were remnant pieces of wood in the landscape as downed wood, woody material. There are rocks in this landscape. It's not just the soil medium. And by and large, you know, I would say 90% of the plant grouping that we picked out have survived and actually done quite well. Wow. Um, 
And you would think that you would not be able to plant that many plants up in a small area of eight by seven, but actually I, I think we probably put in a hundred plants maybe. I feel like the denser you put the plants, sometimes they help each other out. Yeah. Uh, and the other beauty of this whole project is each year that it's been in, and it's probably been in three years now, I'm going to guess, um, I spend about two hours in a year weeding or wow. just maintaining that that little area. I have not watered it once. Um, nature does all the watering. And uh, it has really been an amazing and beautiful little landscape to watch evolve. Maybe we try to get some photos up of that too. And I'd like to see it again this spring yeah. and see how it's coming along. If people are curious about your work, either landscape-wise or your furniture and woodworking, um, where would you like them to look? Well, I guess, you know, the good initial step that can be taken at any time of the year is on the website. Um, uh, or just give me a call and have a discussion about it. You know, it's always good. I do have an open house once a year uh, over two weekends in the fall. That's a great opportunity to not only see me and talk to me, but to get to just quietly take your time and go see the landscapes that I am working on on the particular property that I have in Tinicum and also see the furniture that I'm making um, with the same amount of care and intention that the landscapes get. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, David. I'm happy to talk to you about it.
was a finger picking and slide guitar piece in open D. No name for it yet. Thanks for listening.